we're bombarded on a regular basis with advertisers telling us, there's something wrong with you, but just one pill a day and it could be cured. And that type of marketing is older than the voice I just did. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Emily Goldmears. Emily used to be a lawyer before turning the skill to become a research analyst. Focusing on which products put out into the world will actually help you live longer, happier lives, and which are either draining your wallet or damaging your body. She's here today to break down what you need in your life, and which kind of things pharmaceutical companies just want you to buy without concern for your well-being. Don't feel too ashamed if you learn you have bad habits or if they get spotlighted by my expert. She did the same thing to me in this episode, so I'm right here with you. Remember, you can email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message on any of the social media pages to tell me what you want me to do for the upcoming 100th episode, or just to request future topics. For now, let's make sure we're doing the right things for our bank accounts and our bodies. Welcome to the show, Emily Goldmears. Thank you, Colton. It's nice to be here talking with you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? Well, I'm Emily Goldmears, and I used to be a lawyer, and then I segued into science and health and wellness and medicine. Um, I'm a research analyst, a biohacker, a citizen scientist, and I distill scientific and health studies so that others may better advocate for themselves through lifestyle changes and education. And that's awesome to be able to do, you know, work for people that just can't understand some of these things that are thrown at us every day, but it's also quite the shift. Why did you move, you know, from being a lawyer into this kind of health advocate role? Um, I did not love the practice of law, to be perfectly honest with you. It was a great education. And what it did do for me was hone my research skills, which I then used to research these clinical studies that support the evidence as to what is important to do for health and what is important not to do for health. And I always have loved science. And I began deepening my research when my father became ill. He unfortunately had vascular dementia. And I was really appalled by the way the conventional healthcare system treated his illness. It didn't help him at all. And I think it possibly hurt him. So I really was convinced that there might, that there must be a better way to handle this. Um, and thus began my in-depth research. Not to mention I've had my own symptoms with fatigue and other things that have gone wrong due to many of my poor lifestyle choices. And what I found was so interesting and helpful and actionable, I thought I need to share what I've learned. People need to know there are things that they can do, many free and low cost, that where they can turn around their health and feel better. And who doesn't want to do that? Right. Yeah. You're like, oh, is it good to feel better? Is this information easily accessible? No. Well, let's change that. Exactly. Yeah. So what are like the first glaring things that jump out? When you're like, oh, I help people understand things that are poorly understood. People are like, oh, like what? 
there's so many things. You know, my book has 19 chapters. I cover many different concepts. And my suggestion is that people don't have to be overwhelmed by doing everything they can if they want. But if they just want to take small incremental steps, every little bit will help. I start my book with oral health because there's clear evidence that indicates that oral health is correlated with systemic wellness. And lately, a tremendous amount has been written about the gut microbiome, but much less has been written about our first line of defense, the oral microbiome. It literally begins in your mouth. There is a clear two-way relationship, as I said, between oral wellness and systemic health. Untreated harmful organisms growing out of control in one's mouth leads not only to cavities and gum disease, but also to chronic inflammation. It is well understood that chronic inflammation is the driver of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, digestive disorders, rheumatoid arthritis, and impaired immune function. Recent studies have even found that there's a link between periodontal disease and Alzheimer's disease. So there are so many things that one can do to improve their oral biome. And I write all about them. Well, and that harkens back to like the early days of this podcast where I didn't have, you know, expert guests that were out here writing books like yourself. And I drafted my mother to come in and do an episode because she's a dental hygienist. I was like, oh, we'll come talk about, you know, our dental health. And it remains one of the top downloaded episodes. And people are just like, what is happening here? I thought I knew what was going on in my own mouth and I don't understand. That's good. I'm so glad to hear that people are that interested because you're right. There's not a lot of attention given to one's oral health and there really needs to be. So that's terrific. And nice that your mother was your first guest. Yes. She was right there at the start where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing with the show. Help. <laughs> Mothers are good for something as it turns out. I have two sons myself. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, has there been a lot of things that you found where people are, you know, they they might be even doing regular enough cleanings, but they're not taking good enough care of their teeth on their own? Yes. Well, I'm a big believer in not just flossing, but water flossing. You can get a very inexpensive water flosser that really does a great job. And that's, uh, I mean, a really important thing to do. And of course, brushing, seeing your dentist regularly. And also it's good to eat a nutrient dense diet without a lot of refined sugar. And the other thing I talk about, which some people don't talk about, is it's important to avoid so many of the oral healthcare products that are filled with bad chemicals. Mouthwashes tend to be filled with alcohol. And what that does is alcohol kills all the bacteria on your tongue, both good and bad. And we need our good bacteria. A lot of toothpaste is filled with bad chemicals. Triclosan, some of these chemicals are banned in other countries. And there's so many non-toxic brands available now that can do the job without harming you. That is interesting because I think people just kind of, you know, trust these when they go into the store they're like, oh, this toothpaste says it's good. And it's, you know, four out of five dentists recommended. It must be good for me and I can use it as much as I want. Exactly. And we all fall prey to that. There's a very thin line dividing marketing and science. And most of these companies are brilliant mar marketers. And we all fall prey to it because they do such a great job persuading us. But unfortunately, if you dig a little deeper, you realize 
one has to be so careful because many of the advertisements and many of the marketing efforts are not in our best interest. Yeah, of course, they're a money-making business. And so we shouldn't blindly trust them, but it does seem like it's so hard to tell anymore when you look like, what, what am I looking at? Is this true or am I just kind of being like strung along? It's very true. And that's why I wrote my book because I, I take great care into trying to figure out, is this valid? And I have 200 footnotes, which show that it's evidence-based and I did the research so people don't have to do the research. Yeah. And that's great. So moving away from oral health, what else do you kind of run into a lot? Well, they're the main pillars that everyone I think has heard a lot about, like sleep. Sleep is critical and one must optimize their sleep. And there are ways that they can do that without taking sleep aids, you know, the bad pharmaceuticals that really don't help you and end up hurting you in the long run. There are some inexpensive ways to do it free, in fact, and those are you maintain a consistent sleep schedule where you go to bed at the same time, you wake up at the same time. You make sure that you go to bed in a very dark room that's cold and that will improve your sleep. And then a great thing to do that there is a groundswell of discussion about is in the morning when you wake up, you go outside and you expose yourself to 10 minutes of light. And if you live in a certain latitude where it's foggy or you don't get a lot of sun, know that the photons are still effective and they come through the sun and get you and, and do the same, have the same result. You just have to maybe stay outside a little bit longer. And you don't want to look directly in the sun, but that morning light exposure, what it does is it resets our circadian rhythms. And that's a whole nother long discussion about circadian rhythms, but just know that sleep is the number one. You have to get your sleep optimized because when you're not sleeping well, it affects every other biological system. Well, and there's something I know that we do, and I'm, I'm not sure quite how much it is actually needed versus how much it happens, but there's a lot of people working on non-conventional shifts these days. Is that, can you still get all these benefits where as long as you maintain, you know, regular sleep routine and you, you know, go outside in whatever your morning is, do you still kind of get helped the same way? You know, I think that what you mean by non-conventional shifts, you mean like night shift workers, people who have a late time, it, it's hard. And I'm not quite sure how to comment on that because unfortunately the studies do support that shift workers who work and are awake at night and sleep during the day, they tend to be more vulnerable to disease. So I'm not sure what to say on that one other than if you can alter your shifts. Yeah. I, I have seen some of that where they're like, you know, there's a lot of risk factors associated with, you know, and that is what I mean, night shift or, you know, any kind of thing where it's like, oh, you're going to wake up much later in the day than normal people. Yeah. Yeah. You miss out on kind of how we evolve to operate in society. And it's not the kind of thing that we're like, oh, well, I'll, re-evolve to working at night if I do it forever. <laughs> like that's not really how that works. No. I mean, I think that you do get used to it, but that's not a good thing to get used to. Ideally you want to get used to a healthy habit, not an unhealthy habit, if you okay. can. Well, and it goes back to what you were saying, you know, it's much harder to find a dark room to sleep in if the hours you're sleeping have the sun in the sky. Right. Although I'm sure there are tweaks that one can do, you know, they can get blackout shades and they can recreate darkness, cover up all the little 
lights that are coming in their room with little stickers or towels or whatever, you know, they can certainly improve upon it. Um, it's hard when they wake up to get the morning sunlight and they don't really want to reset their circadian clock because they need it to be on this backward schedule for their work. So, you know, it's not ideal, but I, you know, I realize that people have to do it. So for the people that are on the, the normal sleep schedule, how important is that? Like getting it really dark in your room because, you know, I have like an alarm clock that emits some form of light. Is that something I should try to avoid? So what you do, I think it's really important. And, and I'll tell you why. The reason why is because we are exposed to so much blue light. And during the day, that's okay. At night is where it presents a problem. And the blue light comes from our devices, our overhead LED lights, and little sort of unthought of devices like your alarm clock. And what happens is that blue light at night, it goes in through your eye and it hits your pineal gland and it shuts off your production of melatonin and human growth hormone. And you don't wanna do that. Now with an alarm clock, an easy fix, put a towel over it, you know, so it can function and it can, you know, the alarm will go off, but the light won't get into your eye. So there are little things that you can do that aren't that tricky that will benefit you. And there's kind of an interesting, you know, note there when you said like, oh, it'll stop production of melatonin. There's a lot of things we use across the globe, not me particularly, but a lot of people use different sleep aids to go to sleep. Do we trust one more than the other? Or should we just kind of try to avoid having to take any of these you know, outside medications or supplements if we don't need them? Well, that's a great question for which I have a very lengthy answer. The first thing is one of the main themes that I discuss always is that each one of us is unique genetically and biochemically. So what works for your sibling or your friend may not work for you and could be downright harmful. Um, having said that, I would avoid the pharmaceutical prescription sleep aids because those will not serve you well. I mean, perhaps if you're in a crisis and you need it during a very short time, maybe, but I'd rather see people opt for other alternatives. Now there are supplements that are effective. Not everyone can take melatonin. Much has been written about melatonin and all of its benefits, but the reality is it doesn't work for everyone. For some people, it makes them very groggy or it gives them nightmares or things like that. Some people love it, others don't. But there are other neurotransmitters that you can affect through things like GABA and L-theanine and other kind of calming supplements that may be beneficial, but it requires a little bit of experimentation for people. Well, and it's probably one of those where even if you are using it, like even if melatonin does work for you and doesn't give you really crazy dreams, because I've heard that's very common, it's not something you want to rely on, right? Like you use it to kind of adjust, make sure you're on the right track and then stick to that, you know, rather than like taking it every night just to get to sleep. Well, that's probably true for most supplements, not all. There are some that we do need to take on a regular basis. Um, and once again, it's a lengthy discussion, but um, it's right. If you're in some sort of a crisis and you can take melatonin on a short-term basis to kind of reset your clock and you don't have adverse effects, then that's okay. But um, you know, that's probably ideal. I think the less that we take is better. Now, having said that, there is a need for supplements. One just needs to be very careful and do their due diligence. 
because of the fact that our soil is depleted of minerals, resulting in food that's not nearly as nutrient dense as it once was. And as one ages, they lose certain enzymes. There's a real place for supplements, but you have to be careful. And what I suggest is that people do some testing, some just fundamental testing at the outset. And it may cost a little bit money at the outset to do the testing, but you'll save a lot of money down the line because supplements are expensive. And it's good to determine what your baseline is, where you are deficient, because inherent in the name supplement means you are adding, and it's sort of an unspoken conclusion that you're adding where you're deficient. So it's good to identify your deficiencies. Now, something like magnesium, I think the statistic is 80% of Americans are deficient in magnesium. And magnesium is a critical mineral that's responsible for over 300 enzymatic reactions in our body. So chances are you'll be okay with that, but it's still beneficial just to get a picture, a snapshot in time of where you are to know what to address and what to not address. Yeah. So is that like a blood test or what's the, what are you recommending? There's a lot of different tests. I mean, I have a whole chapter on testing and tracking because I'm fascinated by that. And there's an adage, which I really believe in, which says you cannot fix what you can't measure, unless you know what's going on internally, you don't know where to start. So there are basic blood tests to look at your vitamins and minerals. And then there are more elaborate tests that will test for your micronutrient deficiencies. And most of us do have some micronutrient deficiencies. And when allowed to go unchecked and untreated, they grow and they can really add to our health issues. So it just depends about how involved one wants to get in their testing. Yeah, I know some of that shows up in, you know, blood work I've had before. And I live here in the Northwest and they're like, yeah, most of us are very deficient in vitamin D. That is just a thing you're going to want to take because it's good for you. Like, just go ahead and go get some. Are there things, you know, like magnesium, vitamin D, are there things that we should not be putting like supplements into our body where you're like, you have plenty of this already? Definitely. And here's the thing about D. I hope when they tell you to take D, you want to take D3. That's a more bioavailable form. And you want to take it with K2 because what that will do is that will allow it to circulate and get deposited in the right spots and not the wrong spots. So D3 with K2 is an important thing. And yes, there are definitely most of these vitamins, not most, but some are water soluble. So you'll excrete them. If you have an excess, some are fat soluble, like a, there's a whole bunch of them that are fat soluble and you don't want to overdo them because they'll locate in your adipose tissue, which is a nice word for saying you're fat. Um, and you do not, some of them can be toxic a in particular. And that's why it's just good to figure out what your baseline is. Yeah. I felt good when you were like, hopefully D3. And I was like, I do. I always see it like the little three next to the D that feels good. And then you're like, and K2. I'm like, I don't know what K2 is. That's going to be problematic. You can either get a separate bottle of K2 to take along with your D3 or many brands are now formulating the two together. You can just buy one bottle that has D3 plus K2 already in there to make it easy for you. Oh, nice. So should we be looking when we're getting supplements, should we try and find one that's like, this is exactly the supplement you're looking for. And that's all that's in this bottle. Or can we kind of trust some of them that are like, this is the super pill and it involves 
a hundred different things that you're going to take. I'm wary of the hundred different things. I mean, unfortunately, the reality is there is very little barrier to entry into the supplement industry. It is a gigantic, I think, $200 billion industry and growing all the time. Everyone and their brother are making and selling supplements. And you have to be careful. The reality is 14 conglomerates, big, huge corporations have bought up all the small supplement companies. Many of those small companies started with a great mission to produce a pure, good product. And then when the big conglomerates come in and buy them up, their main objective is monetary. How much money are they going to make? And so they'll cut corners. And often it's been found by testing companies that the dose on the bottle doesn't come close to matching the dose in the capsule or the tablet. That along with the fact that they put in these things called fillers and binders and excipients to bulk up the capsule. And we don't need to be taking those. Those are not good for us. So you want the purest brand as possible. And you have to understand the synergistic reaction with these. In our body, nothing acts alone. Our biological systems act synergistically and anything that we take acts synergistically. So those bottles that have six or eight in ingredients, you have to be careful because you may be unwittingly duplicating with another bottle and you have to just find out how are these reacting inside of me? So I believe in supplements, but I just think people need to be wary, do their due diligence and be careful. Of course. And I know, you know, even just from being somewhat exposed to news about supplements, that it is like a wildly unregulated area. Even if they're owned by like larger pharmaceutical companies, supplements aren't, you know, they don't get the full stamp and seal and evaluations that other, you know, full prescriptions do. Exactly. They don't. And I think that there might be efforts to change that right now. They're regulated under the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. But so one thing that one can do is they can look for third party certification. There are a number of these third party certification places that will kind of give you a little bit extra comfort. One is USDA, USDA organic, there's CGMP. There's a number of others, which I list in my book to look for, to make sure that, you know, to give you some comfort that what you're, what they're saying that you're getting is actually what you're getting. Yeah. And it isn't just pills too, because I think the one that I heard about is like, you know, workout powder because some of those, oh yeah, it'll help you bulk up fast or whatever it says on the bottle um, are banned by groups like the Olympics. They're like, you cannot take this because it's essentially steroids. Right. That's so true. And also a lot of the powders, some of them have have traces of heavy metals in them too. So once again, you may you have to source your brands very carefully. You don't want to be taking cheap brands because you have no idea what you're getting. And that's a that's a hard line to find because you're like, oh, how much should I be paying for this supplement? Is it the kind of thing that I can get for five dollars a bottle, or is the fact that I see a brand selling it for thirty dollars a bottle an indicator? Like which one is? is too far. Not always. I mean, there is an adage that you get what you pay for. So chances are the $5 bottle probably won't benefit you. But sometimes the expensive brands, um, they're doing something tricky also. So it's not always correlated with price. It requires some extra due, due diligence. 
And that's where that, like, you know, find a testing group or find somebody that's certified that this is in fact a good product because both of them could be lying in some direction or another. Indeed. That's so true. Sad, but true. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, when we talk about like testing things and making sure, you know, we know the numbers on things, there are a lot of at home or on your person, you know, tracking devices and testing kits and all kinds of things where you can just like, oh, put on the the watch and it'll do everything for you. Is that kind of a fad or are we seeing like a true revolution in you taking care of your healthcare? I personally think it's a revolution. I love the tracking devices. I write extensively about those. But having said that, they're not all accurate once again. Some are good and some are not good. And even the ones that are good, they're probably not 100% accurate. One of my favorites is this ring that I wear. It's called the Aura Ring. And it comes out of Finland. And it gives you incredible metrics about your sleep, the amount of REM sleep, the amount of deep sleep, what your resting heart rate while you sleep is, what your breathing rate, what your HRV, which stands for heart rate variability, which is a metric of stress. And it gives you an enormous amount of valuable data. Now, is it 100% accurate? Probably not. But at least what it does is it gives you some data. And I believe that data is important. One needs to be able to collect it accurately and then interpret it well. And that's why some of the devices, they either don't collect the data properly or they don't interpret it well. So this is at the beginning of a frontier, but I think that as they improve, it's going to be great for everybody. I really do. Yeah. And I love seeing like, you know, like, oh, it's a ring and it helps track your sleep and your heart rate because some of these, I I couldn't name them by name and I probably shouldn't, even if I did remember the names are like, oh, we have this one device. It's a watch and it tracks 30 metrics. And I'm like, you might be doing a little too much. Like, I don't know that it should or can do all of these things because I see them and they're like, yeah, it's a watch and it'll track your blood pressure and your heart rate and your sleep and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I don't even know that a watch can do some of these things. You're right. You know, if it, the old thing, the old saying that if it sounds too good to be true, chances are that it is too good to be true. But another device that I love that I really think everyone should have, and I believe in the future, as we move along and artificial intelligence advances, I think everyone is going to have what's called a continuous glucose monitor or a CGM for short. Now, this is a device that was designed for diabetics to monitor their blood sugar, but it has great utility for people who don't have diabetes because hearkening back to my statement where we're each genetically and biochemically different, one person could eat a certain food, even a benign food like a carrot or banana, and they could spike their glucose where another person based on their biochemistry and genetics may have no spike whatsoever. And it's these consistent glucose spikes that are they're finding are very harmful for us down the line. Even with neurodegenerative diseases, they're finding that a component of those can be the your glucose crossing the blood-brain barrier. So you can get your doctor to write a prescription for one of these less expensive ones that aren't, don't have all the bells and whistles designed for diabetics. And you can slap it on your arm or your belly. There are YouTube videos that can guide you through that. And then you pair it with your phone. And before you eat, after you eat, 
you can monitor how your body is responding. And it also picks up responses to your sleep, to your stress, to your exercise. And it's such important information. It's going to take a while, but I literally think in the future, everyone's going to have one because they'll be able to personalize their health. Yeah. And that's where we get into some of the, like, you know, the new tech that just kind of lives on or even the newer stuff inside of your body where it's like, yeah, this is awesome. And it can track you. Some of it seems, I don't want to be too harsh on some of their designs, but a little rough around the edges, especially most of the implantable stuff that I've seen. It just doesn't seem like we're quite there with the science. As I see someone with like a half a deck of playing cards under their skin. And I'm like, what does this do? And they're like, oh, well, it tracks my sleep and my internal body temperature and my, you know, heart rate. I'm like, okay, there are things that can do that without putting them under your skin. (laughs) I completely agree with you. And I spend time in the biohacker communities and that's the domain of most of the biohackers. They're willing to do anything without hesitation. I don't subscribe to that. I think one should hesitate at times and I'm not quite there with the implantable stuff yet. I don't think you're right. I think you're right that the science has not advanced far enough to confirm that there's a benefit there. And I'm sure there are risks there implanting this stuff under your skin. So for right now, until things progress, the non-implantable devices can give you good data. Yeah. And bless them for doing it because it moves the science forward. And eventually it'll be good enough where it's like, yeah, you should use these implantables. And it is only going to get there because they're doing it. Exactly. Because it's certainly not me. <laughs> right, right. Me neither. <laughs> the other cool kind of wearable thing that I have seen that I really like are like fitness trainers that you can actually wear. I don't know if you've seen some of them, but I have, I even have one around here somewhere where it looks kind of like a watch or a little, like a small bracelet. And it just tracks your movement to an app and it helps guide you through like doing better performance workouts where they're like, oh, when you're doing this workout, you're not keeping your back straight enough because we can see all the excess movement in your arms or, you know, you can put it on your ankle and it's like your running form, you know, needs this adjustment. And so it's interesting because it's like, oh, it's tracking how much I'm exercising, which is awesome. But it's also telling me how to improve my exercise, which is great. That is great. I'm not familiar with those, so I can't really comment, but that sounds great because, you know, posture and and spine position and knee and hip, all of that and ankle, all of that's really important. So that's terrific. I, you know, I'll have to look into those. Yeah. I think the one I have is called move. Um, They are definitely not sponsoring me, but it's M O O V. And uh, I thought I was running well before I started using it. And I like, you know, it has a strap. So I just put it on my, my ankle and it's like, okay, start running. And I started running and it's like, you're landing far too heavy. Here's your, like, you know, you're reaching 11 G's of, of movement, acceleration and deceleration. And you need to try and get that under like four because there's a high impact zone. That's like bad for your joints. So your running is just hurting you right now, even though it's exercise, try and make these adjustments. And it's like in my headphone while I'm doing this. And I'm like, man, this thing is very aware of me. (laughs) That's cool. But now do they give you guidance as to how to adjust your motions? Yes, it does. And it like, you know, I heard, oh, you're landing too hard. And I like looked at the screen, actually, I'd like pick up my phone and look at what it was saying. 
because it's like, yeah, this is why it's bad. Now try these things. Like perhaps you're overextending yourself or you're doing, you know, any number of things, which I couldn't think of the top of my head, but were a very interesting adjustment for me, you know, feeling like I was running was good no matter how I was running. It's like, no, you could be doing a lot better. <laughs> That's very cool. I, I wish I knew about that. I was a runner for 30 years. And unfortunately now, many years later, I have bad knees. And, you know, it might have been, I don't know if it was just the pounding or my gait was wrong or what. So I miss it terribly, but I can't do it anymore. Unfortunately, as we get older, newer tech comes out, right? And it benefits the younger of us and not the older of us. Indeed. Indeed. Well, good, though. That makes me happy to hear. Yeah. So what else are we looking at where you're like, these are the biggest pain points. If I had, you know, something to tell people that are listening, what are like, what's a big one for you? Nutrition is a big one. And many of the things that I learned, I learned because I was doing it all wrong because I was a runner. I ate anything and everything, and I didn't think it was a problem, but I didn't understand what I was doing internally. And then when I began researching, I realized, oh, I can't do that. That's really bad. And it took a long time. You know, when you're young, you're very resilient and you can do a lot of bad things to yourself and the symptoms don't show up for years. But my suggestion is don't even go there. It's not worth it because when those symptoms show up, they're really bad. And it's hard to turn around the ship. I did because I, I completely altered my nutritional habits. I mean, as we know, this country is filled with sick people and they're getting sicker by the day. The CDC recently came out with a statistic that lifespan is declining. That's really bad. I mean, it's an indication that our approach is not working. And one fundamental thing is nutrition. You don't hear that a lot from doctors. They get very little nutritional guidance in medical school. And many of them say, oh, it doesn't matter. And that's dead wrong. It absolutely matters. And it should be of your top three areas to focus on. And the way that one should do is eliminate ultra processed foods. They may taste good, but they will creep up and hurt you in the long run. And if you can eliminate those, I suggest that you do so. Reduce your sugar consumption. There is no benefit to sugar. There just isn't. We get it enough in fruit and things like that, but processed sugar is not helping us. In terms of plant versus a meat diet, I am a believer that it depends upon your own biochemistry and your own genetics. There are some people who do well with a vegetarian diet and there are other people who do quite poorly. And some people do well with eating a lot of meat, others don't do well. My only advice there is that if you're going to be eating animal products, make sure that they're sourced well. You don't wanna get factory farmed animal products because they shoot them up with antibiotics and hormones and they're squished in close quarters and they're fed bad food and you eat what the animal you ate ate. And if you can get well-sourced, high quality animal products, it can absolutely be a part of your diet. It probably shouldn't be the mainstay, but depending upon your individual biochemistry, it could absolutely be a part of your diet. But plants are critical. They have polyphenols and phytonutrients and so many things that we need that one can't avoid plants. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, we put such a heavy reliance on like, oh, this is the supplement that I have to take once a day. 
but your nutrition you're taking in upwards of three times a day. So it's like, yeah, you're doing a bit more of this and you probably should put a lot more weight on it. And we go to the doctor, you know, we have like our regularly scheduled checkups, but when was the last time anyone went to a nutritionist? Yeah, they should. I mean, really to educate themselves on just the fundamentals of nutrition. They really should because it makes a difference. And the interesting thing is when I radically changed my nutrition, I felt so much better. I mean, I have more energy than I've had in 20 years just because, well, I changed everything, but I think a large amount of that feeling better is attributable to my nutritional changes. And when you feel better, it kind of incentivizes you to continue along. It's worth it because the amount of joy and pleasure you get from eating really bad stuff is minuscule compared to the symptoms that you'll get as a result. And there is... I know I've seen a couple things out there where they're like, you know, sugar is easily as addicting as most harmful drugs. It's true. They're like, so if you're doing it often, it's actually because you're an addict and not because you just enjoy it. I had that mindset where I was like, oh, I just eat some of this candy because I enjoy it. Right. It's just fun for me. And they're like, no, you're probably addicted to it. You probably eat it pretty regularly because you continue to increase your consumption rate and that'll increase your addiction. Right. And there are no benefits to it other than the, you know, the few seconds of joy that you get in your mouth, that's it. And it's not worth it because the amount of harm it does is exponential. So that's a tough one. I love sugar. Sugar had been my most favorite food group. I really loved it. So it was hard. And I can't say that I've reduced, I've eliminated hundred percent, but I probably reduced it by 90%. And I feel so much better as a result. Yeah, I think it's one of those where, you know, if we had something that was looking over our shoulder constantly, you'd probably change your diet a bit just to not be so embarrassed by what you're eating. And that probably says a lot about it. Like if I, if I made you cook all of your meals in public with everyone else, would you still eat the same things you're eating right now? Well, and that's a great point because it's why nutritional studies are so inherently poor. And the reason why is because people have to self-report in order to be a part of a nutritional clinical study. They send you home and you have to self-report what you ate and what you didn't eat. And people tend not to be accurate or honest. And so that's why we see so much conflict in the nutritional space. Sure. Because they're like, look, we need, yeah. As the researchers, they're like, I don't care what you're eating. Just give me accurate data. And people are like, well, I don't want them to know that I haven't eaten a vegetable in 20 years. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That and the other aspect why the nutrition space has so much conflict. And it's, you know, you one month you hear about how coffee or eggs are good for you. And the next month you hear the exact opposite. And part of that is because how different we each are. And for some, it's great. And for others, it's not good, depending upon their genetics and biochemistry. So to do these large, wide scale studies based upon population demographics, the information that they're getting may have no bearing on certain individuals. Yeah. And I have to imagine that's why you see these conflicts, like you said, just constantly where they're like, oh, a glass of wine a night versus some places where are like, no, cut your alcohol completely. And yeah. you're like, well, which one's true? Which do I trust? It's like, you're going to have to do a lot of research and then know what's right for you beyond that. Exactly. Do you have a stance? just since we're talking about it on alcohol consumption? Personally, I no longer drink. 
I did drink. I was never a big drinker. I was a social drinker. But I found as you age, you lose certain enzymes. And I clearly lost the enzymes that break down alcohol. And I found that I would have a third of a cocktail and be very drunk. And that was not a good thing. And then I would feel bad the next day. And I did the math and it wasn't worth it for, you know, a couple hours of fun to feel so bad the next day. I thought this is just not worth it to me. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone stop alcohol. One needs to find out what works best for them with the proviso that they probably shouldn't drink excessively. Right. And there is, I think I was looking this up for an episode. There is a, like a shockingly low entry point where they're like, you're an alcoholic. Because some people have that like, oh, I'm going to drink a glass of wine a night. I think that actually puts you into the alcoholic category because it's like seven or more drinks that are, you know, over a certain percentage. And you're like, well, that is seven or more drinks if you're having one a night and it is over, you know, whatever it's like 10 or 15%. Like wine is generally in that category. So even though we're like, well, I'm following a health guideline, like, yes, you also weirdly fall into this alcoholic category. So something to be aware of. Right. And also you need to be aware of the fact that alcohol converts to sugar. It's just one more place we're increasing sugar and you don't want that. Yeah. I think this has all been very illuminating for people and hopefully they're, you know, taking some notes and, and writing things down to improve themselves going forward. I wanted to give a moment to kind of plug your book and where people can find you if they're looking for more. Well, thank you for doing that. Um, so my book is available on my website, emilygoldmears.com. It's available on Amazon and Target and Walmart online and independent booksellers. So wherever books are sold. And if they pick up your book, please leave a review for the book. Yeah. A good review propels authors upwards. It's really important. Just like anything else you, you know, are consuming, like leave good reviews for things. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. True. Awesome. Well, I've had a great time. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've appreciated it immensely. Thank you, Colton. I've enjoyed talking with you. Do you feel more informed having listened to this episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast? If so, please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. If you really liked it, remember to subscribe for more episodes and check out the nearly 100 episode backlog I've been building up. Let me know what you'd like to hear by reaching out and emailing me, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or send a message on any of the show pages like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else you find me. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. If you're looking to start your own podcast, I'd highly recommend using the host service that I use, Podbean. You can find almost everything you could ever need to start an amazing show of your own at podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. They have incredible tools to make recording, hosting, cross-posting, promoting, and even monetizing incredibly easy. They're also built with an awesome support team behind the scenes that has always answered any question I have in blazing fast time. That's all for this week. I will see you all Monday the 5th so we can learn how to have hard conversations. Bye bye